Hi guys, welcome to the Art of Acquisitions podcast. Here we discuss how you can create cash flow and grow your wealth with acquisitions. We have a great guest lineup, including Craig. Craig bought two businesses with 10 million in sales, no money down. And Alan, Alan has led multiple deals ranging in value from 1 million to 9 billion. Yes, that was right, 1 million to 9 billion. Art of Acquisitions, simply the fastest strategy to create cash flow and grow your wealth. Welcome everybody to Taylor Capital's uh, podcast, all about the art of acquisitions. And um, why acquisitions? Well, for me, it's probably the fastest, simplest uh, way for the normal guy in the street to create cash flow and grow their wealth and leave a legacy for the family. Um, acquisitions for me is, is a way where we can you know, really help our investors, passive pension partners, invest in projects and get a great return. And uh, but for me, it's more than that. I, I love the journey. I love the process. And I just love the game. I love the beautiful game of life, of acquisitions and meeting people. And today uh, we've actually honored and we've got the privilege and pleasure of Alan. Uh, he's with us, Alan Witters. And you know, he, he's let's just say this. He's, he's been involved in a few things. Uh, it's going to be an exciting discussion. Uh, we've just come off a podcast from uh, one of his principals, uh, Tyler Wood is working with Alan, one of the one of the companies. But anyway, long story short, Alan has a 35-year career. Um, this is going to be a brief introduction. I'll try and make it brief. He's managed ops in 135 countries. Um, he's led multiple corporate development transactions, venture capital, m and IPOs, convertible stocks. And um, he's managed m and across 50 deals uh, from 400 million uh, P&L to um, basically contracts over 25 bill. What's really fascinating is he's a former and current advisor to the US Navy, the Pentagon, the NSA, uh, Air Force, Marines, which is quite exciting. Uh, I want to hear more about that. And I suppose another thing, a long, long time ago, in a, in a foreign land, Great Britain, um, he bought his biggest global competitor, um, which is quite incredible. And he bought it out of a, a bankruptcy and eventually basically paid the creditors nine bucks for every one buck, which is quite an incredible achievement. And more recently, he's involved with uh, Gravitas, Infinitum, Carbatura, and uh, Transport for Life, T4L. That's a really exciting kind of, well, multiple projects, obviously. So I think that's enough. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Really appreciate your time, buddy. Thanks for coming here. Can you introduce yourself? Who is Alan Witters? What, what, you know, where does all this passion and vision come from? It's absolutely incredible the things that you've done and you're involved in going forward kind of thing. So introduce yourself, Alan, to the guys. Well, thank you, Dan. Uh, my name is Alan Witters. I'm a recovering serial entrepreneur. Um, so as my wife would say it, I'm a workaholic. Um, I have failed at retirement five or six times. And what I like is the constant learning experience that I get of everyday life and trying to build and create new things. The kryptonite in my life is that I usually work 10 to 15 years in the future. And I wonder why people don't understand what I'm telling them today. Uh, <laughs> I have to sort of jump out about 15 years and come back. So. Anyway, um, Dan, you want to talk about acquisitions? Um, yeah, acquisitions in terms of, I love what you just said there. You work 10 to 15 years in the future, and that's very uh, reflective of the kind of deal that you're involved in right now, or this global, uh, what did Tyler call it? Hot Planet Repair Kit, <laughs> which I thought. Yeah. Uh, we, 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 we're creating the Hot Planet Repair Team, and it's going to be made up of some really big companies and really interesting people. And we're the team that's rolling up our sleeves and actually doing it. We're just not talking about it. You know, there's so much greenwashing going on now that uh, somebody's actually got to go do some work. So, absolutely. The tree planting is not going to solve the problem. We've got a bigger problem. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And we'll come back to that because that's a, a fascinating, um, you know, product you're delivering. And I love the raw materials you're using. And I love the transportation costs of those raw materials. It's phenomenal. Uh, so we'll come back to that. But how did you get started in acquisitions, M&A, venture capital? Um, you know, when was that? And what was the first kind of introduction? What was your first deal kind of thing? Yeah, so um, I got into 
really advanced high technology when I was very young. Um, I graduated high school at 15. I moved out of my parents' house at 15 and a half. And I had two jobs. I did design work on ultrasonic devices for submarines. And I did computer-aided design CAD CAM work in 1976. 1976, seriously. As a 16-year-old, okay? Yeah. And I was too dumb and stupid. And over the next two or three years of doing that, I was making more money than any college student ever would. Yeah. You know, making a hundred bucks an hour at that time. And uh, I, I didn't go to college. I just was all self-taught. And I was on a bleeding edge of technology that wouldn't be shot, uh, taught in a college in another 10 years. Yeah. So I got into all the computer design and uh, had a consulting group. And we traveled literally the country doing Fortune 50, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 consulting on CAD CAM systems. And at that time, the computers were $5 million. $5 million for a computer. Wow. And they would spend $100 million on CNC equipment. Robotics wasn't real active at that time yet. But we ended up getting involved in these giant programs like the B-1 bomber, uh, radar systems, uh, washing machines, vacuum cleaners. I mean, uh, we designed all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that's a hell of a difference. A vacuum cleaner to the oh, B-1 yeah. bomber <laughs> and everything in between. You know? Everything in between. And so we probably had over a 10-year period, a thousand different clients and a thousand different products we designed. Yeah, that's incredible. So really, in the, in the core of everything you do, this is coming out already, you are a creative problem solver for the future. You know? Yeah, you always got to go towards the problem because then there's a market. Yeah, absolutely. And when was your first, you know, that's, you know, creating uh, new products that aren't around, uh, selling them to obviously a highly liquid market, you know, the Fortune 150, 100, 500. And when it, when did you then morph into M&E, uh, venture capital, do your first kind of acquisition, if you like, of an existing, you know, company, asset, whatever it may be? Yeah, so while I was in the CAD business, the CAD CAM business, I, had a, I created a service bureau in 1983. And it was the first time-sharing graphics CAD CAM service bureau. And we, um, we bought uh, one of our competitors in that space. And this is when com the, the CAD systems were changing from big mainframes to PCs. Right. So there was a huge sea change there. And we took advantage of that. And we became the largest distributor of PC-based CAD systems in the country. Uh, and we had all the manufacturers. And I ended up taking that company public when I was 25 years old. 25 years old. And yeah, what kind of experience yeah. was that? Obviously owning it, being in control to then having a kind of board that you'd have to bring on as part of that process kind of thing. How, let, me, let me just say that there's a lot of gray hair around me. <laughs> no wonder being 25 year old. So first public when IPO at 25, what kind of bump in valuation did you get? Oh, um, we had probably only put a couple of million dollars into that company. And I think we were valued at 30 or $40 million after we, after we uh, went public. Yeah. And was the reason to go public a half exit or was it to get the liquidity to grow? Um, the board of directors wanted liquidity. I didn't necessarily want to go public, um, but, you know, being young and saying, oh, I better listen to these really experienced guys. Yeah, uh, we went public, and they they cashed out, and I cashed out also. So it wasn't it wasn't a bad deal. Yeah, and that obviously gave you the momentum to move on to the next thing. Yeah. So after that, I I retired for the first time. Um, Twenty five. <laughs> um, you know what else to do? You got money and time and nothing to do, so you re you say you're retired, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there, there's a problem with me in retirement. Me in retirement especially when I have time and money and they come, they collide, I end up doing thinking about stuff and I'll throw four or five deals up in the air and I'll be busier than I was when I was working on one deal. Yeah. So you're bored. So you, you get, you throw yourself into something or five. Yeah, yeah. And I see what sticks. Yeah. Well, I, I was uh, actually, 
a, a neighbor of mine said, hey, you're not doing anything. You want to come help me? And, and he was creating a bunch of uh, uh, restaurant uh, uh, concepts. And he was uh, in the restaurant business. And I said, oh, I'll help you out. And he says, I need some demographic information. And he knew I was into computers and data. And so I went out and did a, a search. And th this is before the Internet. And so I went around and I found a small little company called Datamap in 1987 and they had some raw data and I bought the data from them. So I was a customer and it's just a bunch of tabular data on demographics yeah. uh, around a location and data map is what it says. They map data and they're one of the, they were probably the first GIS company in the world. Mm. Um, I bought some data and I said, well, this data is just useless. I have to read it. I could put it in a spreadsheet. I could look at it that way, but I couldn't map it out. And the company didn't have any mapping routines. They used just tabular data on demographics. And I said, okay, um, I'm going to write a program. And over a weekend, I wrote a, a simple basic program on a PC that read the data in and it mapped it out in just rough polygons. Mm. And, and I said, okay, well, here's my density of high net worth individuals. Here's my density of low net worth individuals. Here's the radius or circumference of demographics. Yep. And I was able to do some mapping around a site, a restaurant site, to see if we had the right demographics. Mm. Well, I, I, I went and showed this to the guys at Datamap, the, the founders and CEO, and he says, oh, my God, you did this in a weekend. I've been, I've been trying to do this for three years. <laughs> and and I, I, he asked me to join him as their CEO. And so I said, okay. And, and I'm joining a small public company. It's an interstate filed public company that had a $250,000 market cap. $250,000 for a public company. Oh, yeah. It was, it's a real, it had 11 employees. Yeah. And I said, okay. I'll come in. I bought in. I bought 30% of the company. Mm. So that was sort of my first sort of public company acquisition. And I bought, I bought in for 30% and I came in as CEO. Yeah. Um, five years later, we sold it for 64 million. 64 million, 30% was like 80K or something. Excuse me? Yes. Yeah, 80K. Yeah, so 80K plus you, you fixed, obviously, their one big problem, how to, uh, you know, put this, obviously, all the data into a visual representation of trying to create a, a solution to the problem, being, you know, where do I put my restaurant, basically. Um, and obviously, the, the uses are far reaching, but that was your first initial kind of problem solve. Okay. Uh, yeah, and, and that company is really interesting because, it still has products in use today, even though the company's been sold a few times and merged and stuff. But we invented something called the geographic underwriting system that's used by all insurance companies in the United States. Right. And uh, that that's still used today. It's funny. It's called Gus, and you can go look at it over at ISO, uh, yeah. Insurance Services Offices. If you're a business owner, professional, or SaaS pension trustee, and you want to stop the inflation erosion of your capital, you want to create cash flow and grow your retirement capital, but you just don't have the time. Do you want the baby without the labor pains? Then if you qualify, you may be able to invest with us. If that's you, pop along to tailorcapital.co.uk. We do the deals so you don't have to. It's kind of like the Netflix of investing. So... 80k in, 64 million out. That's not a bad, a bad deal. How long did that take you? Uh, that was five years to do that. Yeah. yeah, I take it you you retired again. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tell you where it gets complex. At the same time, I was CEO of DataMap. I bought a company called Angicor Limited out of bankruptcy, and these guys had the best heart valve in the world. Okay. Yeah. And the reason I knew that is that I had been hired by St. Jude Corporation in 1983 when I had my CAD businesses to redesign the St. Jude heart valve because it was having failure problems. Right. So I, I knew what heart valves needed to do. I knew the application. And so I ended up uh, assembling a small team of people. We put $150,000 together. 
We then raised $3 million. We went into the court, bankruptcy courts, and we said, okay, we'd like to buy this. We had to have a little bit of a board fight with their existing board. And we ended up taking this out of bankruptcy court, putting $3 million into it. And it was a publicly listed company on NASDAQ. So during this whole process, we also negotiated with all the, the creditors, which was about $20 million in credit. Wow. All right. We negotiated with them that they all take stock. Yeah. And then we relisted the company about 14 months later on NASDAQ. And it basically came out as a $9 to one return to the creditors. Nine to one. That's yeah. not as in terms of the, the bump on the, the value on listing. Yeah. 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 And, you know, um, I had to guarantee some legal work, $150,000 in legal work. And I had, uh, you know, to put in, uh, you know, a little bit of capital. Um, but, you know, that that's one of those deals where that paid probably 4x on returns, uh, maybe 5x yeah, in a 12-month so period. Yeah. So they're basically in bankruptcy, the 20 million was going to be written off effectively and you turn it into 180 million. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and how fast was that? That was quite cool of you. Oh, that was that was 18 months. That was a quick one. 18 months. That's fantastic. What a story. And what was the biggest reason for you know listing in that bump? What what obviously did you bring to the table? To oh, we, we we put a management team in place. We expanded uh, the manufacturing uh, into Ireland. Oh. Uh, we hired 40 or 50, 60 people. We I mean we we turned it into a real company. The previous company was ran by a bunch of doctors and we were a bunch of business guys. So, yeah. you know, it, it, all of a sudden fancy furniture didn't mean anything to us like it did to the doctors or they spent all their money. So you turned it into a machine. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah. That's absolutely awesome. 18 months. That's a hell of a turnaround. And to go from 20 million pound loss to turn that into, you know, 180 million pound gain. The shareholders must be, um, I would imagine, they're following you to try and invest in future projects. Uh, yeah, um, yeah we'll, we'll get into that in a second. Now, again, during the same period, I'm CEO of a public company. I'm chairman and CEO of another public company. All right. And then I also bought another business. <laughs> <laughs> so how does the uh, of the powers that be in a public, um, you know, the, the compliance and the regulation around that? How does that kind of allow that to happen, or is it? Oh, that that's easy. You just got to disclose everything. You and know? you're fine. Yeah, cool. Yeah, the, the shareholders wonder what's going on sometimes, but you know, mm -hmm. I ended up we ended up installing a uh, on the heart valve company. We installed a CEO. I stayed as chairman and then I actually resigned as chairman when we got ready to go on the market so I could sell my stock. Yeah. Right. So, um, so master juggler, creative problem solver, futurist. Um, I, I love what I'm hearing and 18 months to turn an 80 K investment into 60 mil. That's not bad at all. I suppose you got 20 mil of the, a third of the thing, which is not bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so again, back to that third acquisition in that time frame. um, Remember, I was in the CAD CAM design business, and in 1982, we designed a golf cart for a company. And from the ground up, brand new golf cart. And it was really popular, but the owners of the golf cart company, and this is, is in 1987, 88 maybe, um, they were having a problem because they had the golf cart company and they had another one. They had two other businesses, one in the farm implement business and one in the silo business. Yeah. And this is in northern. This is in Minnesota where this is all being done. And um, they're like, we don't know what to do with this golf cart company. It's too sophisticated for us. We've got a lot of marketing we've got to do. And. They said, we don't know what, what to do with it. It was just sort of, they didn't know how to control it. It had 70 employees. Yeah. And I told the guys that I would take it off their hands from them. I paid them $11,000 for this company. And it was marginally break even. It was losing them a little bit of money. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll put the money in. We moved the company to a small town of Esterville, Iowa. 
We got a whole big economic development package. And then 11 months later, I sold that one for $1.1 million. Yeah, that's not about 100 grand a month. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, I put $11,000 in it to transfer it. And I probably put another 100 grand, 150,000 in an operating capital. Yeah, and we, we sold that one in 11 months. That was the fastest and quickest one I've ever done. Yeah. And so that's, that's a 10x in, in a year. That's not bad. <laughs> and what's your most memorable acquisition? Because obviously you've done a ton of deals, um, you know, um, whether it be contracts, m and kind of thing, venture capital, whatever it is, um, you know, bought bankrupt companies, took them public again uh, and whatever. What's your most memorable one? The one that, you know, you're at a party, you've got a whiskey, you've got a Havana. Later. Well, you, want, you, want, you want good memories or bad memories? Oh, we need both. Good, <laughs> the good, bad, and the ugly. <laughs> let's do. Let's do the. Um, let's do the ugly. Uh, and then we'll go back to something really pretty cool. Um, uh, let's see. Mid two thousands. Um, a friend of mine reaches out to me and says, "I've got a wireless internet company, and I'm not going to name any names." but uh good friend and he i'd been in the networking business for the last seven or eight years with another company and i'll talk about it in a minute but it uh i ended up putting three and a half million dollars into that business um by guaranteeing some leasing of wireless equipment yeah. that company ended up covering 750 square miles in the Dallas Fort Worth area with internet wireless internet in the early mid to two thousands. Um, we ended up, uh, actually getting, we acquired a company 10 times bigger than us that was in the voice over IP business. And it was a good match because we could expand the wireless network on top of their backbones. Yeah. And we, could offer voice services to our customers. Yeah. Um, the business was growing at about 18% a month. So it was very fast grower. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh yeah. It's very capital intensive. And um, we had services in seven states and we were one of the largest. We had about 600,000 maybe yeah, about 600,000 voice circuits going into business, primarily businesses, yeah. uh, government agencies and banks. And we were the number one business phone competitor to Quest, US West or Quest. Yeah. Now they were also our number one supplier. And we did this acquisition and uh, the, um, due diligence sort of fell apart about halfway through. No, it wasn't due diligence. It was actually our funding fell apart. If I remember right, um, this is 2008. We're getting ready to buy this company. that's 10 times bigger. We had a term sheet in for, I think $20 million of financing from a, a group out of uh, Boston. And then 2008 hit and literally wiped them off the map. And we had to renegotiate the acquisition to a stock only acquisition versus a cash acquisition. And they, and they went for that. Yeah. Yep. They went for it. Cause they, they, they like our, our business was growing faster than their business. And we, we had a velocity that was pretty good. So we, we bought into this business and we had a, a whole bunch of questions on due diligence and we, we get the deal across the line. And then all of a sudden about five months, three to five months in, we find out that there was a lot of false documentation. Mm. All right. Assets had been sold. Um, some of them not even recorded. Um, there was no auditing done on the circuits with Quest. We found a three and a half million dollar overbilling by Quest. Geez. Wow. Oh, yeah. Um, we also Talk about skeletons in the cupboard, eh? Oh, yeah. I'm we're talking the ugly here. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, and they, they actually needed you. They needed you more than you needed them kind of thing. Oh, yeah. They needed us more. Um, that's the only way a goldfish swallows a shark anyway. Yeah. So the um, 
the funny thing about that whole thing is that uh, we found an overbilling by Quest. We also found out that Quest had uh, not offered public tariffs to us, that they had offered their own internal companies that were competing against us. And there was a 90% difference on the pricing on the tariffs. Wow. And so we, we filed an antitrust lawsuit against Quest. Yeah. And they have done this to 30 other companies in the past, all right? They tried <laughs> to wipe out the little ISPs. Yeah. Jesus. And so we filed a, 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 an antitrust lawsuit in uh, New Mexico. Uh, it had to have been the uh, superior courts there. They, um, we had a restraining order, so they couldn't turn down our circuits. We had 700 or 600,000 circuits out there. And um, we're going into court on this, and this is, uh, had to have been 2009. Just right after the crash. Yeah, so, you know, everybody's on pins and needles financially. Mm -hmm. and, but our businesses are going pretty good. And then we get into this lawsuit, and we had a restraining order on Quest to not turn down our circuits. They were able, at the, on December 29th, they were able to get the case moved to federal court in Denver, which is their headquarters. Right. And they had a lapse in the restraining order because the judge was on vacation for the holiday. We had a 36 hour lapse in the restraining order and they disconnected all 600,000 circuits. In 36 hours. Wow. So January 1st, I believe of 2010 or 20, 2009, I don't remember which year exactly, probably 2010, um, seven different states, public utility commissions are having an emergency meeting at 7 a.m. on January 1st, January. Ordering, ordering Quest to turn our circuits back on because sheriff departments, banks, ATMs, government agencies, hospitals all went down on voice services. Wow. <laughs> they were ordered to turn them all back on. They ended up over a 90 day period, only turning up 40% of them. Mm. They countersued us uh, for our antitrust suit. They actually personally sued me. Okay. And, and the next thing you know, we're in this giant legal battle and all of our revenues gone. And all your customers are obviously manning the phones, calling you. And they're basically gone. All right. You know, and, and so. so what, what kind of revenue were you doing and what did it fall to? Uh, revenue was about 12 to 15 million, maybe 16 million. And then, you know, within a month, it basically yeah. gone. Zero, gone. Yeah. So quarter million pound a week to zero dollars a week. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So, so we, our cash lasted about four or five months in that situation and also paying the legal bills and everything. And, uh, we finally, you know, said we had to settle. Um, I resigned as a, as chairman on that. Um, you know, I basically, and, and I, I think that company maybe a year later filed bankruptcy. Yeah. I lost three and a half million dollars in that one. Yeah, I've been there with you, brother. Uh, <laughs> when it goes wrong, it goes wrong. Eh? Yeah. Uh, we, we've lost big time as well. But um, but you know, if that was it, I mean, that's quite that. That's really quick as well. You know, like from going from you know a million a month to, to kind of zero a month, uh, it's hard to sustain that when that can, the rugs pull from your feet. And it just shows you what kind of um, you know businesses are out there and they're kind of uh, open, you know, modus operandi. That's quite a it's a hell of a way to live, isn't it? You know, when that's your modus operandi. But anyway, I suppose that's a great lesson for everybody out here. There are sharks in the water, yeah. <laughs> so to speak, you know? Um, yeah, so that, that one was really interesting because those were all external events that caused our business to, to have, a, have a sideways turn. So if that was ugly, tell us about the great. You know, what, what's, your, what's your best? One of the most memorable ones uh, is in 1994, I, uh, myself and a partner formed a company called Whamnet, and it literally was two guys in a card table. And this is in Minneapolis, and 
the problem was at that time, the printing, publishing, pre-press, video, CD-ROM, and movie industry were shipping their pre-production data around on tapes and disk drives, removable disk drives via FedEx and UPS. Yeah, back in the day. Okay, so back in the day. So we said there's a problem to solve here. And I don't take on small problems. I take on pretty big ones. That's why we have a hot planet repair team. Um, so um, the problem was this. And when I had the CAD company, we had built an, a wide area network to do CAD cam sharing. And I, I took those designs and that application to build basically our own internet. And so the first year we had 20 or 30 customers tied together with T1 circuits, dial-up lines, and a whole bunch of stuff. And we built basically the first cloud ever in the world at that time. And we had cloud transportation. We put servers on each end of the, the lines so people could communicate and drop their files onto a server really quickly at land speeds. And then we would trickle it across the slow speed wide area network lines to wherever it had to go. And so we're just a, a, a traffic system for data. And this was mid nineties. Yeah. Yeah. Mid nineties, 94. Yeah. When Blockbuster were at their peak kind of thing, just before the, the demise or their down cycle. Okay. So everybody's still going to Blockbuster to rent their movies and you've got this cloud system going on um, to transfer data from obviously one, one place to another place kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's incredible. So I suppose when you say you're 15 years ahead, you were literally ahead of your time in that space. Uh, so we're building this network and all of a sudden people are discovering that we could cut out four days to five days of delay right at deadline. Now, this allows Target stores to change their prices right up to four hours to press time. It allows Time Inc. to move their print time on all their publications up four days. It impacts the newspaper industry, the printing publishing industry, the advertising industry. Yeah. And within the next four years, we rolled out to about twelve to 15,000 locations around the world. Wow. Now, our model is really crazy at that time. It's not crazy today, but it was crazy then. We gave people $12,000 to $250,000 worth of hardware at their site, and we charged by the megabyte that they put through it. Right. People yeah. thought we were crazy for giving hardware away back then, all right? Yeah, absolutely. And so we're, we took a bunch of CapEx, and we, we invested about $860 million in computing. And we spread it around the globe. Now, at that four-year point, we're at about 40% market share, maybe. And we're expanding rapidly. We're getting into new markets. We're getting into CD-ROM, DVD, movies, movie dailies. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole industry was taking on to us. And we, at that time, were about, we were much larger than the internet itself at the time. So we moved a lot of data. We were removing three terabytes of data a day. Jesus. And then it got down to three terabytes a, an hour, all right, to give you an idea. <laughs> By the late 90s, I take it, yeah? Yeah, this is uh, late 90s. Yeah, wow. Three now, terabytes an hour. At about, at about 1997, our competition was a company out of Bournemouth, England, in your neighborhood. Yeah. And it was called Foresight, and Foresight had dial-up circuits at 64,000 locations around the world doing file transfer also. Mm -hmm. And we actually, we, bought, we, we said, okay, we're competitors. We'd see each other at all the shows all the time. And we decided that, hey, it makes sense just to get together and own the marketplace. Wow. So we ended up buying Foresight for, I don't know, 20, 30 million bucks. And we ended up now with 85% market share. And we, we were a juggernaut at that point. And we, we, we created cloud storage, media databases. Uh, if you're using iCloud today, that's based on some of our technologies. Yeah. And what kind of revenue was the company doing at this point? 
we went from zero to about 150 million in about five or six years. And then we went to, I think, around 400 million right after that. Yeah. And was that after the acquisition? Yeah. So 150 to 400 million with that acquisition. Right? Yeah, we did, we, did a, we did several acquisitions in that, with that company, um, picking up pieces of technology, picking up market share. Um, we had uh, about 35 global subsidiaries. Some of them would pick up local local things that we needed. Um, uh, it was that was a rocket ship of a company. Um, I mean, we went from zero to about seven hundred employees. Now, the the one thing I do like to take credit for is in nineteen ninety nine, I created a government division for for WhamNet called mm -hmm. Netco, and um, we ended up teaming with EDS, and we won the the largest IT contract ever in the world. It was a $6.9 billion contract. One contract. Yeah. Yeah. One contract. And our job was to take over and own all the Navy Marine Corps networks at 602 bases. Wow. They had 6,700 disparate networks at that time spread out across all those bases. And we turned 6,700 networks into one. And we did that in three year period of time. And we also came in with a brand new model. And the Navy loved it. Basically, they paid by the month, by the wall jack, and everything in between the wall jacks was covered. Right. <laughs> so there was no capital equipment budget whatsoever. It was a, a usage budget. So there's a P and L instead of a capex. Yeah, we, we, we move, um, I'm really good at shifting big capex models into unitized usage models. Monthly recurring revenue kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah. You don't have to go to the handout to the politicians. We know big capex boost. It just goes on a PL and it could sign on off on that easy kind of thing. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's absolutely ingenious. Fantastic. Love it. Yeah. So that's 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 what our T4L business is based on, is that model also. Yeah. We buy a bunch of cars and then we put them out there, basically sell them by the mile. <laughs> yeah. That's that's incredible. So one contract was 6.9 bill. Um Obviously, defense, which they're always going to a great customer. And, uh, and then after that, um, obviously, that was acquisition. So tell me, answer this. When you had, you grew that company from scratch, basically, you got to about 150 mil. What kind of multiple were you trading for? Were you still private at that point? Um, we were pseudo public. We had a uh, we had a $208 million public traded bond, but the, the company was private still. We had a yeah. public bond with a private company. I sold out in 2001. I had a um, I had a heart attack on an airplane when I was 40, and that happens because you're traveling the globe too much and you're in an airplane too much. Right. Uh, so I sold out in 2001. The people that bought the company was a New York hedge fund. Um, I do know that that contract with the Navy, the Navy had crossed a 20 billion dollar line uh, four or five years ago. Um, I also know the, uh, that the company, they ended up breaking it up and selling it. Uh, Harris Corporation owns one piece of it. Dai Nippon owns another piece. Um, CenturyLink bought a piece. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, but those companies are still running and in existence today. Um, after that, I decided to change my lifestyle. And I ended up losing my second wife in a, a car accident. Uh, in 2003. And that, yeah, that, that changed my life a lot. And I decided to just check out a business. I, you know, I, I'd been working dog years for wow. 20 years. So and, yeah. And, <laughs> and I uh, ended up buying a, a 10,000 acre ranch in New Mexico. <laughs> As and, you uh, uh, I ended up marrying a, a, a close friend of my wife's, and actually, she was an employee at the company also. And and we moved to New Mexico, and uh, we played cowboy cowgirl for about seven years. Right, fantastic. Yeah. Take some time off for once. Oh yeah, yeah. And and in that period of time, that's when we did the wireless company that went sideways. But you know that that's that's happens. Um, I decided to actually get back and reengage in business about three or four years ago. Um, I did, we, we did buy and sell some companies uh, in that period between uh, small stuff. But um, now I'm working on what I think is actually sort of 
you know, going to be the, the biggest and best things I've ever worked on. Uh, we have the Gravitas Infinitum is a sustainable impact company. Oh, it sounds fantastic. I've been following it for the last year, uh, and what you're doing is incredible. And uh, so introduce us to this, Gravitas Infinitum, Carbatura, um, the whole nine yards. What is it all about? What is the big problem it's trying to solve, number one? Well, let's, let's start with the foundation and not the problem. Gravitas Infinitum is based on being the best company for ESG and SDG principles. Mm. Right now, we're the number one uh, impact assessed company in the globe, okay? Uh, we hit the SDG scale at about 96%. Yeah. So I decided that we can build a good company that is based on sound social, economic, environmental principles, okay? Mm. And then, we also need to be a highly profitable company. Now, again, I work way out in the future. So a lot of times I basically have to cut down what I'm thinking about by about 90% and then present 10% that I think is appropriate for the now time period. So now with Gravitas, we're presenting something called Carbatura. And Carbatura comes from the words carbon in Latin and captura in Latin. So it's Carbatura. Hmm. We're about carbon capture from the air. Now, what's really cool about this business is that we're air mining. We have unlimited resources. We have zero cost to access or develop those resources. And we make all kinds of cool carbon stuff. And by the way, the planet's carbon-based and silicon-based and humans and everything on it's carbon-based. So carbon's a big thing. And we've been pumping carbon out of the ground and exposing it for 200 years at a point where we can't do that anymore. And we might as well grab that carbon we've put into the air and turn it back into products we can use. And so we're basically an air mining company. Now we've put together a series of proven processes in other industries into a box, a module. Module's about $100 million. And it will capture around 350 tons of carbon per day it puts out bioproducts, and the first bioproduct is a biochar because then it's a permanent carbon capture. And by the way, it is self-powering because we, we grow biomass in very large scale vertical farms. We take the biomass through a pyrolyzation process. It generates fuel that, gener that we use in generators, and it generates the biochar that we then capture. We have three revenue streams. We have carbon credits, we have biochar, and we have tax credits off of this. And we're working on building the first campus, which is about a half billion dollar project. And we expect to build thousands of these. So if you know anybody wants to lead a hundred billion dollar round, let me know. <laughs> I love it. And I hear uh, Morgan, um, is it Morgan that's just invested recently? Um, Morgan Stanley is our bankers. Right. Yeah. Cool. So in, in a nutshell, if I've got this right, what you're doing effectively is you're getting resources that are already there in the atmosphere. That, so the free resources that are there, but they've been polluted by ourselves over the last 200 years. You're basically mining those resources in the atmosphere um, yep. for free. You know, you're getting them for free because they're freely yep. available to everybody. And then you're not only getting from free, you're actually getting paid to take them because you're selling carbon credits on the back end of that to companies that are actually putting them there in the first place. Yep. So you're, charging, you're charging companies to put them there, then you're getting them for, for free and then processing this them for free and then selling out the back end this carbon charm. Yeah. Yep, you got it. It's absolutely beautiful. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that, that, people wonder why we have 80% margins. Yeah, there's no cost, you know, apart from <laughs> It's a thing of beauty, you know? Yes. So, so the other thing that Gravitas Infinitum is doing, we have the Carbatura project, which takes years to get off the ground because of construction and a lot yeah. of stuff and this project funding. We, uh, we got bored last year and we said this electric vehicle market looks really interesting and it fits right within our principles. Every car, every, uh, if it's electric, keeps 10,000 pounds of carbon from going into the atmosphere every year. So we said, 
And we also looked at the changing car marketplace. Car ownership is changing to car usership. And everybody wants convenience. So we said, how do we make the most convenient, you know, approach to transportation? We said, okay, we'll buy a bunch of cars. And I go back to my WhamNet days. And I said, oh, and then we charge by the mile, basically. And so we basically now subscribe cars out. It includes the insurance, all the maintenance, car refresh, the vehicle itself. And basically to us, that's a service delivery platform. Yeah. We're going to be layering all kinds of services on. So, you know, three years from now, again, I'm, I'm out in the future. Three to five years from now, these cars will be full self-driving. And you're going to want some entertainment, right? Yeah. So this is why we talk to Netflix and Amazon and the game box people, because we have the next entertainment center on wheels, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and that's back to your philosophy of taking a CapEx thing and then, yep. renting, it, and then renting it out. It's the same yep. kind of thing here. Same as what you're doing before with the target and then taking instead of UPS, let's take that CapEx, give them a computer for free end to end and then rent them the service kind of thing. Yeah, and I can predict my revenue for years. That's the cool thing about it. Yeah, that's incredible. And um, in terms of gravitas uh, with the carbon capture thing, then obviously you don't, obviously you've got a big capex at the, at the outset, but how do you then rent the carbon char? Is there, is there a plan for that? Because obviously you're taking a capex and then your renting model's got to kick in at some point. Um, is, is that potentially instead of, you know, charging, if, it's, if you're like digitally printing a house with a carbon char, for example, that I've heard is seven times stronger than steel. Um, would you then rent those materials? Yeah. So the uh, what's interesting about this is the um, we're building evolution one. Okay. And remember, I told you I'm a little bit out in the future. We have three other evolutions behind this. So the same technology by just extending and bolting on some other components, to give you an idea on the front end, we can bolt on a plastics elimination component that eliminates all waste plastics and turns that into fuels for our systems, okay? Yeah. On the backside, I can add nano processing capabilities to process the biomass into nanocellulosic crystals, nanocellulosic fibrils, and we have high-level products. We're starting out with the lowest-level product we can, biochar. That biochar can go into every ounce of concrete and makes concrete 35% stronger and about 25% lighter. Okay? And so we're talking to concrete companies and cement companies about this and selling thousands of tons of this a month to them out of our plants. And it'll be, you know, this is, there's a whole new materials era coming. And I call it the carbon economy era that everybody's got to be very aware of because there's a shift in the value chain and all the materials. There's a shift in behavior. There's a shift in monetary cash flows happening. Absolutely. The future's coming faster than we think. And what a concept, what a, what a business model. You know, when you're not paying for the, your resources, you're not paying for the raw material. You're actually charging the people that's putting the raw material there and yep. use as your resources. And at the back end, you've got something that's significantly better than what's available in the marketplace right now. Yep. And which means you're, you're going to have a queue of customers. Demand, you know, you've got a demand is going to outstrip supply at some point, which is yep. why you need the CapEx from uh, Morgan Stanley and the like <laughs> to put the produce more plants. It's fantastic. I love it. Absolutely love it. And I love the tra transport for life. What is the first two? Um, you know, there's two fours in there. So transport for life is the last three. What is the first one? It's just an, a, a, a mirrored anagram logo. T4L, T4L. All right, cool. I love it. It looks like a Tesla for some reason. Eh? Yeah, you, you can turn it around anyway and it says T4L. So Yeah, brilliant. Um, that's fantastic. And what would be your advice, uh, Alan? Because obviously you You've done a ton of things. And a lot of people say stay in your lane. And your lane, even though it looks like you've done a ton of things, your lane is the future. Crystal clear, that's what it is. It's, it's you know, solving huge problems um, you know, and bringing them back to what can be achieved today. Um, so what would be your advice with somebody, either it's acquisitions, 
starting something that's solving a huge problem or fundraising because obviously the whole three have to come together to do anything meaningful in life kind of thing so someone starting out or someone is maybe not starting out but they're trying to get to their first 50 million 100 million whatever it may be what would be your big advice um well there's there's three three pieces of advice i would give somebody um one first figure out how to project into the future set a point in time where you look at the current social behavioral technological and mechanics of your business where where they think things are intersecting and when you can find intersections five or ten years out in the future and they can be from diverse areas but if you can find that intersection point put yourself there and look backwards it becomes very clear hindsight's 2020 and all you have to do is figure out what are the steps i need to get to that point okay yeah. Now, to help you with uh, that, learn how to take large doses of vitamin B12 and B6 and sleep on it because <laughs> you can hack your head and think through these problems while you're sleeping. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, on execution, don't present what's happening 10 years from now because people don't believe it. Uh, you have to present what can happen in the near term window, maybe in a year to 18 months. Yeah. And, and keep all that other stuff secret. All right. Because <laughs> then, then you'll, then you'll start looking like you really know what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. Absolutely. Love it. Um, Alan, what an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'd love to have you on again at some point. And right. I'd love to have a chat with you at one point about um, our own business and where we're going and, you know, I'm sure you'll have some insights in there, but I, I just love that advice you do, you just given there. You know, dream ahead, imagine what could be, what, what are going to be the problems, social technology, um, the evolution of whatever's happening in your industry, where is it going to be in five years? Look back, connect the dots. As Steve Jobs says, you can't connect the dots looking forward, only, oh, yeah. only looking back. And, um, and I think Napoleon Hill would agree with you as well that, you know, imagineering in your sleep before you go to sleep. Sometimes you wake up with the problem, the solution to the problem. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. So anyway, Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure. I won't keep you any longer. I know you're in a massive uh, raise right now, uh, you know, funding raise. So I wish you all the best with that. And I'd love to talk to you again. And uh, in the meantime, it's been an absolute pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, any watching, Alan Witters, uh, thanks very much for coming on the show. And we'll see you all soon.